Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Hey there, and welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planet. And it is indeed a strange planet. And if you'd like to get a little deeper into Strange Planet, you might want to consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just click on the link in the episode notes, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. You gain access to commercial free listening. Say, I love my sponsors, but occasionally it's kind of nice just to, uh, to listen to the content without the ads. You also gain bonus episodes and a free subscription to my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. There are a couple of, uh, well, there are three uh, tiers, if you will, to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. All right. We're going to get into sacred architecture, symbolism, geo and astro mythology, global catastrophes, ice ages, asteroid and comet impacts, mass extinctions. Well, as much as we can squeeze into 45 minutes with my next guest. And I can't believe that uh, I haven't had this gentleman on the program before. He hails from rural Minnesota. Randall Carlson is a builder, teacher, independent researcher, entrepreneur, owner of Archetype Design Build company, in-depth research for over four and a half decades studying geology, astronomy, ancient history, architecture, sacred geometry, symbolism, and a variety of esoteric traditions. He's been an active Freemason for 45 years and the host of the podcast Cosmographia and a partner in HowTube.com, a new internet platform 
dedicated to freedom and uncensored exchange of ideas and knowledge. He's organized over and led over 50 tours exploring sites of antiquity and geological catastrophism. He's led many classes and workshops and has lectured widely. He's currently writing a book on the connections between ancient geometry, earth changes, and cosmic cycles. Randall Carlson, I'm, uh, I, I could spend the entire show just, uh, you know, talking about your, your resume and your biography. Welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? Well, thanks for having me, Richard. I'm doing very well, considering all of the things in the world today, and I'm doing quite well. Yeah, we just have to, we have to stay positive, I guess. It's in, um, somewhat in God's hands. We uh, have to stay positive. That's a key. You just nailed it right there, Richard. You got to stay positive. So an interesting age we are in. Uh, but there are, there have been, or are, are four ages of the mm -hmm. world that you talk about. What are those four ages? Well, there are different ways of depicting them. Depends on whether you're coming primarily from a mythological uh, perspective or a scientific perspective. Now, the mythological perspective, you know, we find that idea of four ages. Sometimes, actually, we're in the fifth world, depending on who your uh, whose re, uh, traditions you're looking at. Hopis were in the fifth world. Hopi, Native Americans. Um, the Greeks, of course, is where we kind of got our classical conception of four ages of the world, uh, you know, starting from the Gold Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and and the Iron Age, the age of iron that we're in now. And in that model, of course, we're in sort of this descending mode where each age gets a little bit uh, more degenerate than the previous age. Hmm. And uh, I, I kind of think that uh, it's kind of a two-way street because we're, in some ways, we're degenerating because we're losing those connections with nature that our ancestors had. Um, when you grow up close to nature, it sort of, I think, stimulates almost something on an instinctive level, on a much subtler level, that you're you're much more in touch with with the natural forces of creation when you grow up close to nature. Uh, for, I'll, ju I'll just give you a, a very basic example. Many, many people today have no concept of the night sky, uh, especially urban dwellers. Go back 100 years and back millennia, our ancestors were very familiar, very intimately familiar in some cases with the night sky. Mm -hmm. And knowing that the night sky is a basically a fixed backdrop, but occasionally and sometimes frequently, things happen against that backdrop of what in the scientific terms we would call the fixed stars because typical to a human lifetime the stars don't change a lot when you were a child looking up and saw the big dipper it's pretty much what we're still seeing today yeah right <clears throat> but against that fixed backdrop here's how i think of it the fixed stars are sort of like the stage but then there are things that happen on the stage that involve actions, involve props, and so on. And that's kind of where I think the idea of the ages of the world come in, because I do think that we can make a scientific case that there are cycles within the natural order of things that play out on multiple levels, on multiple scales, and that whether or not the mythical traditions accurately interpret those ideas in a scientific context nonetheless they have their roots in real world phenomena and the recognition by ancient peoples all over the world that that there is a cyclical basis to 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 global change and i think science now unbeknownst to a lot of the scientists who are actually engaged in the research that's verifying and validating ancient traditions they don't even realize that that's what they're doing is that at all uh, connected to um, well, the Gnostics or the, the her Hermeticism that talked about as above, so below? Very much so. Very much so. And and we, we can begin to unpack that in a number of different ways. For one thing, we're learning from repeated uh, examples, empirical data of ancient structures, ancient design principles that the infrastructure of many many ancient societies through the ages and around the worlds around the world were designed to reflect the heavens above you know we've seen some of the things that most people are aware of to some extent the correlation between the three pyramids of orion's belt and the uh 
three uh, 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 the three stars of Orion's belt and the three pyramids, great the the Great Pyramid, Khufu's Pyramid, and Menkari's Pyramid on the Giza Plateau. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's just one example. Uh, we can go to structures in Central America, South America, megalithic Europe, North America, where we find the same principle at work. We're finding the ancient peoples were obsessively were obsessed with the movements of the heavens, the patterns of the heavens, and they in attempted to extrapolate that to their own creations. Uh, so that when they began to construct their world, to design their world, lay out the infrastructures of their culture, they were attempting to reflect the patterns and movements of the heavens as much as possible. And this is an ongoing thing we find repetitively all over the world. Um so astromythology, um, what is that? And is that, is that related to astrotheology? I've had guests on talking about how the Bible is really just an allegory. Uh, it's, it's talking about, the, you know, the, the various constellations and so forth. Yes, I, I would think that they're almost synonymous terms. Um, you know, you know astromythology astro would deal kind of specifically with myths that almost seem to explicitly refer to happenings in the heavens. I will cite as a uh, a premier example of that the, the myth of Phaeton and the fall of Phaeton to Earth. You know, Phaeton was the the uh, <clears throat> the son of Helios, the sun god, but his mother kept that secret from him for various reasons because of the you know the intrigues and po politics of the gods in the in the Greek pantheon that were constantly undergoing so his his identity as the son of helios had been kept from him and he was constantly being teased at school because all the the other students and boys would get together and brag about what their who how great their fathers were but poor uh phaeton had no idea who his father was so he couldn't join in the the bragging that was going on in the storytelling and he went home and you know he was depressed complained to his mother so his mother said okay i'm going to reveal a secret to you your father actually is the greatest of all. It's no, nobody less than the sun god himself. And at that point, Phaeton set out to, his life's mission was to go and to meet his father. Now, eventually, he was able to make his way to the gates of the sun. He encounters Helios. Helios knows that it's his son. Now, in the Greek pantheon, in, in, the, in, the, in the terms of the powers of the gods, the gods had all kinds of powers that humans, mortal humans, didn't have, right? They lived a long time. They could shapeshift. They could do all kinds of things uh, that humans, mortal humans couldn't do. However, one of the things that bound the gods was that if they made a promise, they were bound to, to it. They were committed to it. They couldn't go back on a promise. A promise from a god was indelible. It was and it was non-negotiable, and it was non-retractable. So, Phaeton, Helios is so overjoyed to see his son Phaeton that he says, I will grant you any boon. And Phaeton says, okay, I will know what I want. I want to drive the chariot of the sun. And Helios then responds by saying, well, wait a minute. I meant any, I'll grant you any boon you want, but not that one. Okay, <laughs> not that one. All right. But Phaeton insisted and insisted and insisted and didn't stop until finally Helios gives in and says, okay, but whatever you do, stay on the path and do not let up on the reins. Don't let those four great steeds, and I think there's a connection perhaps with the idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, don't let the great steeds know that it's not me with my firm hand gripped onto the to the reins. So Phaeton mounts the chariot, the gates of the sun open, the chariot takes off, and immediately Phaeton is losing control, and the steeds realize, okay, so the power of Helios is no longer keeping us constrained. So it describes how it's going through, you know, the jaws of the lion, the the uh, the claws of the scorpion. So it's making very clear right there by talking about that, that the Techeriot is now traversing through the signs of the Zodiac, except then the chariot veers from the highway, veers from the pathway of the sun and begins to descend to earth. 
And the closer it gets to Earth, the hotter the Earth gets. And finally, great fires break out. The oceans start to boil. Cities burn up. Um, earthquakes happen because of the great heat. And it's it's creating this tremendous catastrophe, right? <clears throat> and so finally, Poseidon entreats Zeus and says, if you don't intercede here, the oceans are going to boil off. So Zeus then mounts Olympus. He grabs one of his great thunderbolts in his hand, and he hurls it at the chariot. It strikes the chariot. The chariot falls to earth, crashes into the river Eridanus, and it turns out that in we'll, we'll go, come back to that in a second. The the sisters of Phaeton, who are symbolized by the small star cluster, the Heliades. So in the myth, the Heliades see their brother fall to his doom. They're so taken with grief that they weep, and their tears gush forth and cause the great flood to mm. drown the world. So it's like it's all packed right in there, you know. And 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 then Plato in his uh, dialogue where he introduces Atlantis, the dialogue Timaeus. He tells us explicitly right out. He 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 opens the dialogue, the story of Atlantis by reciting the myth of Phaeton. And he says, now, while this has the appearance of a myth, it's real. That's he, he basically says that. He says it represents one of the bodies moving and circling within the heavens and its descent to earth and a great conflagration of things ignited on the earth by the descent of this body. You can go, anybody can go and, and you can download Timaeus. I rep, uh, uh, rep, uh, I prefer myself the, the Jowett translation, but there's about four or five translations, I think, even available online. Timaeus, it's where Plato introduces the story of Atlantis. So that, to me, is it really captures the idea of astro-mythology, is that we have in there the story, a condensed story of a of a comet caused conflagration on the Earth. Just about every culture has a world flood story, uh, and yet it is, you know, disregarded and by um, I guess orthodoxy or whatever you want to call it. But what what is the geological evidence for a gigantic world destroying flood? Okay, let. Let's put it into a little perspective here. Now, if we take the two versions of the flood that are most uh, familiar to our society, we have on the one hand, we have the creationist version of of a flood, the biblical flood that virtually everybody raised in a Judeo-Christian tradition knows about Noah's flood. Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got strict gradualism that doesn't recognize at all there's 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 no meeting of the minds between those two two groups right however if you take the biblical account and realize that it's only one of dozens and dozens of accounts from all over the world that have been preserved in people's traditions and then you start doing a comparative analysis of those flood stories what you find is that there are a lot of the themes interwoven that are parallel each other, that are similar, and there are d- details that are distinct, which is a very interesting way of looking at it. Some of them, for example, will just have uh, in the biblical 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 account it's just known as family. In the the Chaldean account, <clears throat> it's Zisithrus and more people, the workmen that helped build the ark things like that. Um, You find in Native American traditions from North America, you find many stories of how their ancestors survived a great flood that wiped everybody out. And they're sometimes saved by climbing to a mountaintop. They're sometimes saved by climbing a great world tree. And sometimes they're saved by uh, creating and uh, surviving in what they call the great canoe. So, that's what I'm getting. Okay, so now we have the biblical tradition that basically doesn't look at it through a scientific lens because they don't need to. It's all supernatural. Mm-hmm. We don't need a scientific explanation to explain how all the waters of the world could rise and drown uniformly the highest mountains on the planet, right? 
So that's kind of the oversimplified, sort of the biblical literalist model of the flood. However, what's happening now in the scientific realm is that there has been this gradual and now accelerating movement away from the strict gradualism that dominated thinking about Earth history for the better part of a century to a century and a half. Um, there is now uh, 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 various fields of scientific inquiry from paleontology recognizing the reality of virtually instantaneous mass extinction events. Okay, You've got volcanology now recognizing that there have been volcanic eruptions that have so obscured the atmosphere that it has plunged the earth into a volcanic winter. There's climatologists and glaciologists that are now understanding that there have been a cycle of great ice ages where the huge, huge masses of ice have accumulated on the continental surfaces, causing a corresponding drawdown of the oceans by up to and more than sometimes 400 feet, which is very significant. Okay, so now, if we look at the subject of paleohydrology, which looks at the movement of ancient waters on the Earth, paleohydrologists are now recognizing that extraordinary floods have happened in ancient times, floods that are way beyond in scope and magnitude anything we've experienced in modern times. So <clears throat> I'll give you an example. If we look, if we take the largest flood in North America, during the last century, in fact, there have been two floods where the you had the largest flow measured volume of water flow. Both of them were on the Mississippi River, one in 1927, one in 1993. For those of us older, we might remember the great floods of 1993. Okay, so normally I think the flow of the Mississippi River is between 100 and 200,000 cubic feet per second. During those peak floods, it was four and five times greater, over a million cubic feet per second. Okay, so that's a lot of water. You're standing there, you're looking at this great channel, the water's moving by, and if you were measuring how much water was moving by any point at any second, it would be over a million cubic feet per second. Well, there are flows now well documented in the geological record that have exceeded three, four, 500 million cubic feet per second. Now, how do you even envision something like that? Well, you know, I don't know if we're going to have time to like look at photos or maps or anything, but like that, but I can sort of describe it in a flood like that. And we, in fact, I just returned, uh, I suppose, a week out taking a group of 40 people out through the Western Montana mountains, the Bitterroot Mountains primarily up to the very close to Glacier National Park, up along the Kootenay River, along the Clark Fork River, um, in, along Flathead Lake and Lake Ponderay, in those areas up there, if anybody wants to look, northern panhandle of Idaho. What I was doing was showing them part of the geography of one of these gigantic floods uh, that in one case were a valley we went through north uh, east of Spokane, Washington. The flow, measured flow through there, was over 700 million cubic feet per second. <clears throat> so if you look at the mo largest modern flow measured in the last century in North America, Mississippi River, you can use that as sort of a, a, a measuring stick, a million cubic feet per second. But we're looking at floods that were 500, 600, seven times, 700 times greater than that. <clears throat> so now, if you were a witness a survivor that somehow, by some unusual circumstances, was able to survive such an event. The aftermath of a 500 million cubic foot flood is the world is destroyed. You know what I mean? In, in the sense that for, from the perspective of a survivor, the world is that they knew is destroyed. It's been washed away. It's been wiped out. Um, there are now canyons where there were no canyons before. There are waterfalls where there were no waterfalls before. <clears throat> there are giant sedimentary deposits burying whatever was there on the land surface prior. And the world that they knew, that their society knew, their culture knew, is gone, right? Now, we can, we can document it, that floods on these gigantic scales have happened. Now, 
So we're not talking about a universal supernatural flood that has uniformly drowned the whole earth. We're not talking about a simple, like for, for decades, the explanation for oh, Noah's flood, which of course has now been long based upon the earlier uh, Sumerian accounts that they originated um, <clears throat> with the stories of Utnapishtim and, and others, right? That, well, yeah, it was a big flood, but it was just a regional flood. You know, but nobody invoking that kind of a scenario was envisioning half a billion cubic feet per second. You see? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Randall, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Sounds good. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. And we're back with Randall Carlson, builder, teacher, independent researcher, entrepreneur. And uh, we should point out that he will be, uh, what, a, what an amazing lineup, coming to Stairway to the Stars. Uh, that's November 10th, 11th, and 12th. And Randall, uh, you will be speaking on the 11th. That's the Saturday and the 12th on the Sunday. That's in Las Vegas at the Luxor Hotel, um, November 10th, 11th, 12th, and uh, you can get more information at DisclosureFest.org. I've put the link in the episode notes, Stairway to the Stars, DisclosureFest.org. What are you going to be uh, talking about specifically? Uh, well, I guess since it's called Disclosure Fest, I'm going to have to disclose something that um, I haven't talked about before. Um, I think one of the things I may be talking about is some of the ongoing research and testing right now of a a new technology based upon plasma, plasma energies that I've been involved with for a couple of years and um, and quite excited by what's happening in that in that area in terms of what it could do to alternate to alter the energy environment of our energy landscape of Earth in the next decade. Fascinating. If it, if it catches on and if if it isn't suppressed. Because some of the stuff that we've been looking at and working with is, um, you know, is new, innovative approaches. But the the some of the basic principles have been at work and have been studied and experimented with by variety of inventors for going going back to Nikola Tesla, at least. Um, a friend of mine in the business used to call this going off on a tangerine. But you mentioned plasma. I wanted to ask you about the um, sort of the work of. Uh, Lefty Levengood, the uh, crop circle researcher who talked about plasma vortices, vortices being involved in the creation of crop circles. What do you yes. think? Um, I actually lean towards that explanation as being plausible, um, it, which really opens up a really huge can of worms, Richard, that we could talk about 
And if you want to get me back at some point, I'll have come back and Absolutely. I will have some material prepared where we can dive, take a deep dive into that subject. Absolutely. Yes, we will. Um, okay. So yeah. getting back to the, you know, we're talking about these um, um, cataclysms. So mm -hmm. is there, is there, a, when you look at either the, uh, I don't know, through the geological uh, record or, and through whether we're talking about, you know, astromythology, um, is, is, is there a sort of a predictable cycle of these catastroph catastrophes and mass extinctions? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, when we talk mass extinctions, it's important now. <clears throat> okay, so there are five great mass extinctions in the history of the Earth recognized by paleontologists. And the most famous of these, of course, would be the extinction of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago by an asteroid impact. Just as famous now, becoming more famous, is the most recent mass extinction that occurred between roughly 12 and 13 or 12 and 14,000 years ago that, that pretty much eliminated half the great megafaunal species, mammalian species from the earth. And that, of course, was not as severe as the earlier extinctions because we're talking about what's so-called the Permian-Triassic extinction that happened at the boundary of the Permian and the Triassic uh, periods. That wiped out 90% of all life on Earth, all life on Earth, including marine species and terrestrial species. By comparison, the mass extinction that happened at the end of the so-called Pleistocene epoch that was the transition from Pleistocene to Holocene that we're in now involved half of megafaunal species. What that means is, is that a megafauna species is a uh, an animal that weighs about 100 pounds in body weight. An animal bigger than that is considered to be megafauna. Okay, so what happened is around 12 to 13,000 years ago, half of all the megafaunal species on Earth went extinct very quickly. Now, how quickly? Was it overnight? Was it a millennia or two? Still working out the details, but in any case, even if it's a millennia, it's still an instant in geological time. And so it's something other than Darwinian evolution going on, right? So we necessarily have to look for some kind of a catastrophe. Well, that was the question that, that sort of emerged in, in some of the researchers' minds, some of the workers and scientists' mind in the early 2000s who looking at this evidence for very rapid climate change, at the same time, it seemed that there was a major spike, a mortality spike, in which many of the great species of the Ice Age met their demise. We're talking about the, the woolly mammoths, the mastodon, saber-toothed cats, you know, the, the giant cave bear, giant beavers, giant, I mean, they were giants, that you know. So, they all disappeared. North America lost about 75% of its megafaunal species. South America was very close. Eurasia lost about 35%, and Africa only lost 10%. And uh, that's the reason today that Africa has such a tremendous abundance of, of, of very large mammals. Hmm. You know, the Serengeti Plain. Okay, so that extinction was much smaller in scale than the, the great five, because it barely affected oceanic life at all. But it would certainly relate to habitat loss because large species require habitat. A constriction of the habitat or a constriction of the resource base will lead directly to the loss of species. So the loss of species, we're talking about over 100 species here of, of, of large mammal. <clears throat> so the loss of those species is a direct measure of loss of habitat, right? And the, and the scale of habitat loss can give us an indication of how profound or how extensive the catastrophic environmental and climate changes were. And they were, they were catastrophic, no doubt, no doubt at all. And in fact, the great floods that I was referring to earlier pretty much fall within that same window where we can see the these and the floods let's be clear those floods can can are primarily i think the myths of the floods come from two primary sources 
actually three primary sources. You had an extremely rapid melting of the great ice sheets, the great ice complexes that were covered half of North America, a huge section of Northwestern Europe, uh, were much bigger in Greenland. They were much bigger, you know, in the mountain ranges like the Andes and the Rockies and the Himalayas. And what you had <clears throat> is between about 14,500 and 11,500 years ago, in a 3,000-year window, you had these massive pulses of melting in which huge volumes of meltwater were discharged into the ocean of the world. It was these melting events that were able to engrave the effects of 500 million cubic feet per second flows over the land. And they were accompanied by very rapid pulses of sea level rise. Now, <clears throat> what triggered these? Well, there, I think there were at least, the evidence is consistent with there being at least three. One of them was identified called meltwater pulse 1A at about 14.5. Then you had the younger Dryas, which is roughly... Um, 12,800 to 12,900 years ago. And then you had, that was the beginning of the Younger Dryas. And then you, about 1,300 years later, you had the end of the Younger Dryas at 11,600. Now, that's a very interesting date because that date of 11,600 years ago coincides exactly with Plato's date that he gives in Timaeus for the destruction of Atlantis and the subsidence of Atlantis during a great global catastrophe. And we know from Plato's account that it's global because not only do the great seismic events cause the sinking of Atlantis, they destroy ancient Greece as well. And so when Solon made his uh, self-imposed exile to Egypt, this was in about 600 BC. Okay. Right, right, right in that window. And, he spent around, I believe, about a decade there in Egypt, and he made the acquaintance of the priesthood. And he, when he returned to Greece, he told the story that got eventually passed down through, oh, like three or four generations to Plato, uh, that ended up being recorded in his uh, two dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. Those are the two dialogues where he talks about the story of Atlantis. So if anybody is interested in Atlantis, I say start with the original accounts, Plato's accounts, before you go into all the other stuff, because it goes off in a million different directions. But ultimately, it all, for the most part, 97, 98% of the story traces back to Plato. So Plato records the date that was given to Solon by the Egyptian priests, the elderly Egyptian priest in particular, uh, I believe his name was Salchus, um, according to one of uh, Plato's commentators, Crantor. Uh, so the, the priest is relating to Solon how their sacred registers go back 9,000 years. And back to this period of time when this great empire that had arisen on some islands in the Atlantic west of the Pillars of Hercules, which is known to be the Straits of Gibraltar, the mouth of the Mediterranean. Okay, so this, this empire that was called Atlantis came into the, inter, uh, into the Mediterranean region and began to subjugate all of the various peoples and nations and things that were within the Mediterranean. And then the priests describe how the ancient Athenians, and it wouldn't have necessarily been Athens, because there probably was no Athens uh, 9,000 years before Solon's time, but we, we can call them the proto-Athenians, the people that lived on the Greek peninsula. So they sort of begin to organize um, the the, the cultural groups, the peoples within the Mediterranean, and then they fought this great epic war. And the result was that the, the Atlanteans were driven out, driven back, and were the, the people inside the Mediterranean were not subjugated or enslaved or anything like that. So, And then what happens is immediately after two things that Plato describes. One is that there's a great what, what modern geologists would call a pluvial event, 
or great intensified prolonged rainfall over sections of the Mediterranean. And specifically, he talks about what happened to the Greek peninsula is that it created this tremendous erosional event that washed off a lot of the topsoil and left what he calls the bare bones of the country, which was just the exposed rock and stuff. And that was the end of the Proto-Athenian Empire. At the same time, there was a great seismic shaking that caused the Atlantean Empire, the islands of Atlantis, to sink beneath the ocean. And that was the end of it. So according to them, the event occurred 9,000 years earlier. So if you just do the math. 2,600 years ago, Solon is being told the story. 11,000 plus 2,600 brings you to the 11,600 magic number. And I'm going to pull up a slide here. Let's see if I can get this without any technical difficulty. I believe I can. Oh, good. Oxygen isotopes in Greenland. Okay, so uh, what we've got here is very briefly... Oxygen isotope ratios, what this is, is the by analyzing the gas content uh, that are within bubbles, within the glacial ice, one can extrapolate from there what the atmospheric concentration was. And oxygen isotope ratios are a proxy for temperature change in the air and in the ocean water. And I, I'm not going to, I've got done a lot of podcasts and things where I've gone into specifically the science. We don't need to do that here. Other than the fact that when you have, if you look at this, if you have shifts to the left where the negative numbers are increasing, uh, the, so this is a ratio now um, between two types of oxygen, heavy oxygen and light oxygen. And basically it, it's this, when you have warmer weather, you have more energetic evaporation from the oceans. That higher uh energetic evaporation is able to um, evaporate more of the heavy oxygen, which is the oxygen 18 rather than the oxygen 16. When the climate cools down, it's not as active and there's not as much energy and the heavier oxygen is preferentially left behind. So that oxygen isotope ratio that's in the atmosphere, when it rains or snows, that ratio is it's in the moisture that comes out in, in the form of precipitation. So by analyzing that and, and correlating it with multiple other proxies, they're able to reconstruct temperature changes. Now, when we look at this graph down the right side, you'll see zero to 10. That's the, that's the time span in thousands of years. So this is the present at the top at least at the time these these uh, core samples were taken in the 90s, and it it's close enough that we can still consider that the present. 10,000 years ago is here at the bottom of the core. Over here, this is the surface, so it's zero. And then at 1,500 meters down, we're in 10,000-year-old ice. Now, when you look at this graph, you see that it's not, a smooth line it's back and forth back and forth back and forth and you can see that there are like here's a little spike in the in the warming direction so there was a warming spike right here and this warming spike would would talk would refer to a sudden a sudden shift in climate of about two degrees centigrade which is about three degrees fahrenheit right and right. And, and what you see here when you look at like if you look at this you'll see here's a cold spike this is a well-known cold spike where for maybe even a couple of decades the climate of the planet went quite cold um like three to four degrees colder than now the explanation of what happened here there's there's th different theories and so on but the uh there's no consensus about what is causing this important takeaway the climate the the temperature is constantly shifting back and forth by a couple of degrees there's no point at where the temperature is just holding steady Right. for decades or, or centuries. But where it gets really interesting now is when we get to the bottom, you see that the graph is sort of trailing off to the left here. Yes, yes. That's because we're 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 getting into the ice age. 
um, which was considerably colder. Mm. Now, when you look at the mag, this this period from from the bottom to the top is a geolo- our present modern day geological epoch. It's called the Holocene. The epoch that preceded ours is called the Pleistocene, right. and, and it lasted for two and a half million years, according to the latest dating. Previous to that was the Pliocene, and what differentiated the Pliocene from the Pleistocene was that when the Pleistocene started, the climate of the Earth went through some kind of a major transition where now the climate is oscillating back and forth between full glacial mode and interglacial mode. Right. We are now in an interglacial. Full glacial is where we were at 15 to 20,000 years ago. And there was so much ice frozen up on the continental land that ocean levels dropped by 400 feet. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to go to the next slide, and you're going to see that um, what happened as we go back. So here's the same slide, and what we're going to do now is we're going to I'm going to drop the bottom half, and you're going to see the oxygen isotope shifts, which are a proxy for temperature change, go back to the bottom of the Greenland ice sheet, okay? So right. here we go, and you're going to see what happens. Whoa, look at that. Yeah. Uh, no kidding. Wow. Now, 11,600 years ago is right here. There you go. That is also called Meltwater Pulse 1B. Meltwater Pulse 1A is this spike right here. So you can see we're in the depths of full glacial cold, and it almost took two attempts to get the planet out of the Ice Age. So, boom, here's a massive global warming spike right here associated with a huge melting event, disgorging huge amounts of water and ice into the oceans, raising sea level, and then the climate shifted back again during a period called the Younger Dryas. And that younger dryas is this right here, this spike back into full glacial cold. Yes. And then at 11,600, there was a second spike of warming called Meltwater Pulse 1B. And that successfully was able to kick the planet out of the Ice Age. But it also caused a very rapid rise in sea level. So we had this rapid rise in sea level that has now been thoroughly and well-documented occurring at precisely the time that Plato says Atlantis subsided. Now, how what are we to make of that? Well, the skeptic, I would say pseudo-skeptic, their first response is, well, that's just a coincidence. But I say, no, it's not a coincidence. If it was an isolated event, yeah, we could dismiss it as coincidental, but it's part of a whole suite of things that happened and that puts it way beyond being simply a coincidence, including the fact that there is all kinds of evidence that area along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge actually did undergo a major subsidence event coincident with that rapid rise in sea level. And briefly, there is a phenomenon that geologists and geophysicists are thoroughly familiar with. It's called isostasy. Now, we all know that there's plate tectonics, continental drift, so that the crust of the Earth, the plates anyway, are moving laterally. Isostasy is the movement up and down. And isostasy, actually, the, the surface of the continents and the ocean has quite a bit of flexibility. So in the area where the great ice sheets were over North America, if you go up to Canada, the area around Hudson Bay, which was like the nucleus, the core of the great ice sheet, where the ice was at least a mile and a half thick, the land under the ice sheet was depressed by several thousand feet. Picture a beach ball, and if you compress it this way, what happens the other way? It bulges, doesn't it? Yes. Right? It's trying to it's trying to maintain equilibrium. So what that means is is that in a in a status a, a state of equilibrium, if you were to somehow able to 
average all of the points on the surface of the Earth, what they're trying to do is keep a constant integrated distance from the Earth's center of mass. So if you if you compress an area, like because you built up a mile and a half of ice, and it depresses, other parts of the globe are going to bulge. Where they're going to bulge will be in the zones of least resistance. Those zones of least resistance are along the plate margins, the continental or the plate margins. One of those margins is the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Sitting flanking the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is a sunken plateau whose mountain peaks form the nine islands of the Azores. That sunken plateau is about the size of Iceland, which also sits flanking the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Now, there is evidence, and I've covered this thoroughly in my eight or nine hour lecture, which is online about Atlantis, where I'm going into the scientific and the geophysical and geological details and the evidence showing that along the mid-Atlantic Ridge, as that rapid sea level was rising, the ocean bottom was sinking. There's also evidence that there was major seismic activity along that fault line, along that mid-Atlantic Ridge. The dating of that sinking, again, seems to coincide precisely with Plato's date. Wow. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> The truth will set you free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. As the diameter of the Earth is this bulge that's occurring, I'm thinking of a figure skater. You're from Minnesota. You know about skating. Oh yeah, I'm, I, I up, did up it up as here. a youth. Yes. Yeah, so I'm remembering the figure skaters in the Winter Olympics, and they're doing their, they're spinning around. And as they spread their arms out, sort of increasing their diameter, they mm -hmm. slow down. Yes. They slow down. Mm -hmm. So what is happening as when the earth is bulging that way from the weight of the, the ice, is that causing the earth, earth's rotation to slow down? Well, it's certainly going to cause some anomalies within the earth's rotation. And I think it's going to have effects on it. It's going to have many effects because <clears throat> what you're doing is you're talking about uh, this massive redistribution of weight on the surface of the earth. And you figure now where Canada's at, if suddenly the topographic profile is raised by thousands of feet, how is that going to relate to the equilibrium rotation of the earth on its axis? Hmm. Because you probably know, Richard, that the that the equatorial diameter of the Earth is 26 miles longer, greater than the polar diameter, mm -hmm. because the spin causes the Earth, which is not perfectly rigid, to bulge out towards the equator. Mm -hmm. What that means is, is that you could think of it this way. If you're traveling from the equator to one of the, the north or south poles, you're going downhill by 13 miles. You can literally think of it that way. You're 13 miles closer to the center of the Earth, at least the Earth's center of mass, at the mm -hmm. poles than you are the equator. So what that means is, is that there is a an equilibrium that the Earth is constantly trying to achieve where the distance of a, a plate from the center of the mass is related to its latitude. Does that make sense? Now, what happens if that isostatic movement of the crust in some places goes down thousands of feet and in other places goes up thousands of feet? Throws that equilibrium off. You got it. You nailed it, Richard. That's exactly right. That's, it throws the equilibrium off. Now, how is the Earth going to reestablish that equilibrium? I think several things. One, you're going to see a, a, a tremendous seismic response, and you're going to see the tendency of the cr the crustal material to want to move towards the region where it would be in equilibrium. And I think that brings us into the realm of 
you know, pole shift phenomena that a lot of people are talking about. Going back to the to the work of people like Charles Hapgood and so forth, it was believed that perhaps a pole shift triggered the catastrophes. I think it's the other way around. Right. I think it's the, the and and I think the catastrophes. Plato gives it to us right out of out of his dialogue. He tells us right from the beginning what what he thinks it is. Let's see. I can pull up the quote right here. He says um, a number of things. He uh, yes. Okay. Let's see. Like l- listen to some of this. Um, here's some of the words. Some of what the priests are telling uh, Solon. Thereupon, one of the priests, who was of a very great age, said, O Solon, Solon, you Hellenes are but children, and there is never an old man who is a Hellene. Solon, hearing this, said, What do you mean? And the priest answered him and said, I mean to say that in mind you are all young. There is no old opinion handed down among you by ancient tradition, nor any science which is hoary with age. And I will tell you the reason for this. There have been, and will be again, many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes. The greatest have been brought about by the agencies of fire and water, and other lesser ones by innumerable other causes. Then, now listen to this. This is now pointing out that there have been these multiple destructions. He then goes on to say this, and I think that the reason this is right there prefacing the whole story of Atlantis is because it's the key to understanding the ultimate trigger that led to the Atlantean catastrophe. And this is what the priest says. There is a story which even you have preserved that once upon a time, Phaeton, the son of Helios, having yoked the steeds in his father's chariot, but because he was not able to drive them in the path of his father, burned up all that was upon the earth and was himself destroyed by a thunderbolt. Now here's the critical passage. Now this has, this is what has Plato has written. Now this has the form of a myth but it really signifies a declination, a declining, a moving downward of the bodies moving around the earth and in the heavens, and a great conflagration of all things upon the earth recurring at long intervals of time. Wow. The, um, these cycles of catastrophe mm-hmm. in the earth and human history um what does it tell us about the um the global and climate change that we're talking about in 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 the mo- in modern times well you know what richard i would like for you to invite me back on where we can devote a session to discussing the very controversial issue of modern climate change because it makes no sense segregated out of the long-term context of climate change. Just pull up the image of that graph that I showed you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and people are not, as, as a rule, are not aware of that. Um, it's not being presented in mainstream media that there is overwhelming evidence for natural climate change that would mm-hmm. utterly dwarf anything we've seen in the last century or two. Yes. But, yeah, but there's a lot to unpack there, and I'd I'd, I'd be certainly willing to come back and I would talk love about to. it. Yeah, I would love to. Let's do it. Thank you so much. Absolutely uh, wild information. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me, man. And we'll just say one last thing. Once we begin to see this this kind of these phenomena in nature and know that a cycle of catastrophes is real and that these catastrophes are now acknowledged by scientists across the spectrum to have dramatically affected life on Earth in terms of like causing mass extinctions of species and so on. Where we're at now is the recognition 
that we may be looking at a phenomenon that has caused the extinction of civilizations. And that, I think, is the takeaway. And we're seeing this convergence of, of modern scientific ways of knowing, not modern knowledge, converging with the ancient, archaic ways of knowing. And the two are like perfect complements of each other. Can't wait till our next uh, conversation, Randall. I'll be looking forward to it, Richard. It's been a pleasure, and I've enjoyed meeting you, my friend. Likewise. Randall Carlson, randallcarlson.com. We've uh, connected to that in our episode description. Check it out. Thank you, ma'am. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.